0: I'm Charles Pryor, and you're listening to New Books in British History, a channel on the New Books Network. When we think of the history of the British Empire, we tend to think big. Oceans were crossed. Colonies grew from small settlements to territories many times larger than England. Entire continents, each with substantial indigenous populations, were brought under British rule. Maps were an important part of rule in America. But from the point of view of the Board of Trade, the lack of exact surveys meant that a new approach to mapping Britain's American dominions was needed. Max Edelson is a professor of history at the University of Virginia, and in The New Map of Empire, How Britain Imagined America Before Independence, he shows how the Crown and the Board of Trade initiated the mapping of every new corner of Britain's American dominions, places that were also the ancestral homes of Native Americans and the site of emerging settler republics. The book, which is published by Harvard University Press and has an accompanying website, includes a bibliography of 257 of these maps. Yet virtually every acre of ground shown in them was contested by colonists, settlers, indigenous people, land speculators, and servants of the crown. Britain claimed vast territory, which it could not effectively rule. Max Edelson joins me from Virginia. Welcome, Max.
1: Thanks for having me, Charles.
0: Right. So your first prize winning book looked at plantations in South Carolina. So I'm curious, where did the idea for New Map or the, the idea that became New Map come from? How did you get started on this?
1: Well, my book on South Carolina, it's called Plantation Enterprise in Colonial South Carolina, was really the story of how this group of colonists uh, founded a plantation landscape. So that really sparked my interest in landscapes representing landscapes and even some map makers. So I had the opportunity to spend my sabbatical year uh, in 2008 at the Library of Congress as the Kislak Fellow in American Studies. And one of the special skills that that fellowship asked for was someone interested in the history of cartography, which I hadn't studied really at all in a systematic way. So I I kind of took my uh, fellowship seriously and said, well, I'll I'll give it a shot. And I started looking at maps in the reading room of the uh, map division of the Library of Congress. And um started noticing something kind of peculiar something i didn't expect when i started looking at the manuscript collections that the library of congress held Uh, i expected to see lots of maps of places like philadelphia virginia Massachusetts, the most valuable and uh, populous parts of the British Empire in America. But instead, what I found was map after map of Nova Scotia and the island of Grenada. So this book really began out of my attempt to explain why those maps were there, what they were there for, and what they represented. Um, So I built this book around the maps I saw.
0: Right. Right. And so, I mean, d- when you began systematically, were you looking at particular regions or did you sort of cast the net really widely? When did you get the idea that you were looking at a body of sources that was immense?
1: Well, I knew a little bit about one mapmaker. a uh, uh, William debram He was the general surveyor for the Southern District. I knew him because he had been a quite a, a famous mapmaker for South Carolina. So he's really the, the point of entry for me. I started from him. I began learning a little bit more about what the general survey of North America was. This was the Board of Trades, uh, great mapping uh, enterprise. Um, and the first question I asked after I looked at all of the William DeBram maps that I could find at the Library of Congress was, well, if there was a, a surveyor general for the Southern District of North America. Surely there must have been a surveyor general for the Northern District. So I found a little bit more about Samuel Holland, uh, the uh, army captain who was appointed to lead that survey. And um, the more maps I looked at, the more it became clear to me that these were not one-off maps that uh, individual surveyors had made for one specific purpose. But instead, the Board of Trade had a vision for how America should be mapped and ruled and settled in the generation after the Seven Years' War, the generation before the American Revolution. And so those were the maps I started uh, looking for and looking at at the Library of Congress. These manuscript maps that surveyors in the field had produced of all of Britain's new territories that it had won after the Seven Years' War from Spain and France.
0: Right. so I guess that takes us to the Board of Trade, which is really takes a central position in the book. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about what the Board of Trade was and why the Board of Trade in particular was charged with with this project of mapping. The Board of
1: Trade was founded by William III in 1696, and this was a very um, important year for the British Empire. It was a year in which customs statistics were gathered really systematically for the first time. It was a year in which the British state was really mobilizing to be more of a modern state and less of a a late medieval state in the way it handled governance. Um, And the Board of Trade was very much part of it. Uh, A a permanent committee of the Privy Council whose sole purpose was to... uh, Uh, handle information coming from Britain's rising empire uh, around the world. It was a nexus of information in which uh, officials uh, corresponded with governors, uh, sought to uh, understand the value of the trade in these new colonies. And it was really the moment where Great Britain... uh, England at the time, decided to take command of American empire, not just take advantage of uh, the independent enterprises that colonists and proprietors had had started so far away, but tried to actually uh, govern and regulate what these colonies would be. It would be decades before they could do this effectively. Um, and I think 1763 is really the key moment in which the Board of Trade realizes its longstanding mission of trying to take command over American empire for Great Britain.
0: Right. Uh, and that's that's the big turning point in is, is 1763. Of course, this is the Treaty of Paris and uh, the point at which uh, Britain's territorial dominions in the Americas and elsewhere expand radically. Um, h- what does mapping have to tell us about how Britain contended with, with this new territory?
1: Yeah, so I think um, the longstanding critique that members of the Board of Trade had about American empire was that too much of it was devolved on people who lived in the colonies. Uh, They were long critical of proprietors like William Penn, who, um, although technically subjects of the king, uh, they had to answer to British uh, rule. They were a, kind of a law unto themselves. And uh, officials in Britain really thought that uh, the empire should be regulated from the metropolitan core. And all the autonomy that American settlers, and governors, and, and proprietors had enjoyed uh, should be curtailed uh, so that good trade policies, equitable uh, treatment of Native Americans and um, uh, war issues of war and peace could be handled by the people who were in charge in London and not just left to kind of fester and evolve as they would uh, in the colonies. So uh, this critique had been something they had voiced repeatedly from 1700 forward, but 1763 was a special moment. Great Britain had added enormous territories to its empire, um, North America, all the way from the Atlantic coast to the Mississippi river from Hudson Bay, all the way to the Florida keys, new islands in the West Indies. And it seemed like an opportune moment to kind of set the ship uh, uh, right uh, to uh, answer all these long-standing critiques. Uh, and even if they couldn't change the way colonists operated in places like Pennsylvania or South Carolina, they could develop these new colonies uh, as ideal colonies from the start in which there'd be a lot less autonomy for those on the ground and a lot more control from London.
0: Right. And this, is, this has been a long brewing thing. The the problem that the colonies were, were sort of distant and uh, in a lot of cases left to themselves. Uh, but there were previous maps made. I mean, the 17th century, there's, there's, there's a number of maps made. And, and in the introduction, I, I quote from the book and you quoting from the Board of Trade, uh, worrying about exact surveys, the, the maps weren't precise enough. Uh, how, how did they go about making more precise maps? What's the science of map making in this period?
1: So um a couple things had changed um, you know we're in a moment of enlightenment map making in which cartography is really as much a form of science as it is of art and rising imperial states are taking advantage of map making as a way to both promote uh, their authority over overseas empires and to regulate uh, these distant lands. Uh, The point of departure for this book is really the rise of a military surveying and mapmaking culture that takes place in Europe um, and eventually in America in the 17th and especially in the 18th century. And for Great Britain, this was adopting some of the techniques that were used by uh the french and austrian armies uh, in scotland after the jacobite rebellion uh in 1745. Uh, so the general survey of scotland was really britain's first systematic attempt to map a contentious territory with these new exacting standards of military surveying. So um, some of these surveying techniques uh, involved using plane tables and other tools in order to create consistent maps that could kind of fit together like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. And of course, uh, the challenge was to map the Scottish Highlands uh, so systematically that any commander in the future, should there ever be another rebellion or uprising, could move troops through this contested environment um, and have confidence that the maps represented the space as it really was. So these uh, maps, if you haven't seen some of these maps from the General Survey of Scotland, they um, they show not only um, uh uh, and mountains but they show uh houses and fence lines and roadways the exact kind of information that you would need if you were commanding troops in the field this standard of military map making was the standard that was applied to america after the seven years war
0: but in terms of scale scotland is uh, a completely different thing than the spaces of america which they during the 18th century are still in a lot of cases exploring and coming to grips with, how did they, how did they contend, map makers contend with the the vast scale of the land that they were trying to map?
1: Well, I would say ultimately not very well. And this is one of the key themes of the book is that maps can help produce the illusion, especially if the maps are based on new surveys, new empirical data, especially if they're beautiful and uh, well engraved by some of the prominent uh, map makers in London. Uh, a big map of North America, like Emmanuel Bowen's map that I talk about a lot in this book, uh, can make it seem like all of this space is well known and well surveyed and well rendered. But in fact, the reality was that even after a dozen years of intensive surveying in which Britain devoted tens of thousands of pounds and many men and ships to this enterprise, Um, very little of uh, North America and the West Indies was uh, revealed through this process. A few strategic sites were known exhaustively. um, But Much of North America in particular remained kind of a blank space to British map makers. So maps um, could be very effective tools of empire, but they could also breed a kind of overconfidence that the quality of this geographic information was um, comprehensive. And so I think the way I see early modern Britain at this moment is that officials on the Board of Trade, these key surveyors have grasped the potential of geographic information for ruling a modern, expansive imperial state, but they don't quite have the capacity or the means of handling that information. So what the great surveys that I study uh, from the 16, uh, from the 1760s and 1770s reveal is Britain embarking on a very modern quest uh, to control information. But I would I would say that um, one of the things we know today about, for instance, the U.S. Coastal Survey, which uh, is in charge of uh, 2.4 million square nautical miles, um, is that if you look closely at some of the nautical charts that we still use today as the state-of-the-art uh, representation. Representation of American coastlines and waters; these um, charts often uh, are um, based on 19th-century data. Even with the resources of a 21st-century American government, um, it's almost impossible to map such a vast continental space uh, comprehensively, even if the even with the resources we have today. So, in the in the 18th century, it was just not possible for Britain to to map territory with the precision and rigor that they wished to.
0: Right. And let's go to, uh, I mean, you've mentioned a couple of examples, and, and listeners can go to the website that we'll talk about uh, to see uh, examples. But what sorts of things were these mapmakers seeking to show in, in the maps?
1: First and foremost, the new mapmakers sent out by the Board of Trade, the Army, the Admiralty, the Treasury Department, the Superintendents for Indian Affairs, they were trying to get high-resolution pictures of American spaces so that London officials could see the places they were trying to regulate. And I think the first uh, thing they were looking for, it sort of depended on where they were surveying, um, the surveyors for the Indian superintendents were really interested in, in marking a boundary that they had negotiated with Native American nations in an attempt to create a peace in a very fractious and bloody Indian frontier region. Um, In places like Grenada and St. Vincent, um, they were parceling out the land in preparation to it being sold to investors who would develop it for plantation agriculture. The key thing for the Board of Trade and for the king in this era was to use the lever of control that they had, which was control over how land could be granted to settlers in order to shape the kind of societies that would develop there. So the maps that resulted from this were very high resolution pictures of space, usually at um, one mile to the inch. So uh, enough uh, resolution so that you can actually see the landforms, soil types, um, the locations of structures, the shapes of coastlines, the navigability of, of rivers and uh, entrances to harbors, all the things you would need to issue directives from London uh, so that you could take control over colonization itself.
0: Right. So the detail of the maps is part of an imperial project that's going to give uh, projectors back on the Board of Trade in London, an idea of where the best land is and how to regulate and and organize settlement. But I wonder if we could sort of pull back a a bit and look at uh, something that you described in the introduction as uh, the empire was an interdependent system uh, nestled within a space that was controlled by rival empires and populated by Indians. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the spatial character of uh, North America more broadly, the empires that were there, the indigenous groups that were there, the colonies that were there. What sort of world was this that they were trying to map?
1: This was a world in which Great Britain had had enormous success by unleashing the power of colonization in North America. No other empire the the French, the Spanish, the Dutch, had brought so many settlers to the New World. And um, in no other uh, colonial region had these settlers um, not only uh, multiplied through natural reproduction, uh, but drew immigrants from Europe and enslaved uh, people from Africa to populate these spaces. So, you know, New France uh, had a population of not not much more than 50,000 in this era, um, there were millions of people in British North America. Um, and, and so, uh, but the geographic layout of the w- where these people were was quite limited um, if we look at the big map of the continent. Um, even though colonization was rapidly expanding toward the West, provoking conflict with Native Americans, most uh, British settlers and enslaved Africans lived fairly close to navigable rivers that f- uh, flowed into the Atlantic Ocean. Um, so the problem for Great Britain was how to protect this very valuable, uh, increasingly populous coastal Atlantic region um, with all these contending uh, uh, empires in the neighborhood. So the big reason why Britain sign the agreement and push for the agreement in the Treaty of Paris was to get rid of France and all of its um, uh, threats to this populist core of settlement, uh, to finally take possession of Florida from which the Spanish had undermined slave societies in places like Georgia and South Carolina. So Imperial America was a place of great wealth, a great population, but also a lot of threats that Britain wanted to permanently resolve. Um, And of course, most of the territory in North America that came to Great Britain was not occupied by settlers and slaves, it was occupied by Native Americans who um, had used the presence of the French and Spanish in order to play one imperial power off against the other to get better uh, military and trade relationships. And so Britain now had to make a case to these Native Americans who felt very vulnerable and very threatened with France and Spain retreating from Eastern North America uh, about what kind of relationship they would have uh, with Great Britain. And although the British felt very powerful in this moment of victory uh, in 1763, um, officials immediately recognized the vulnerabilities that this expansive empire uh, was liable to, and one of the biggest ones was that uh, no amount of British troops could be mobilized to defend against a continental Indian war. So the big objective in the fr- on the frontier regions was to make some kind of durable peace with Native Americans, and map making was vital to that because uh, the British really wanted to draw a boundary that would limit the expansion of colonists that would end the provocations that Native Americans experienced through land encroachment and to uh, convince them that Britain really had their interests at heart because they were now subjects of the King of Great Britain.
0: Right. And you mentioned, I mean, that there's a chapter in the book that's devoted to the drawing of the Indian boundary, which is the one that's stipulated by the Royal Proclamation of 1763. If we look at British America uh, more broadly, the, the book sort of, to, uh, takes us through a, a sequence of of regions in in British America and as I, I was wondering if you could take us very briefly through each of those regions and and say a little bit about the different imperatives to imperial rule that 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 are are shaped in each one
1: sure so we could just start from north to south although these sure. were all surveyed and uh, uh Britain attempted to settle them sort of at the same time so in the north um uh the uh Former colony of New France was now the British colony of Quebec, and one of the things that happened both in the Northeast and the Southeast is that, um, you know, French uh, New France was uh, most people lived along the banks of the Saint Lawrence River. But the value of this colony was in its expansive relationships with Native Americans all the way to Lake Superior, into the interior of uh, the continent, in order to promote uh, both military alliances and a valuable fur trade. Britain redefined the boundaries of Quebec so that settlers would remain locked in place, they hoped, along the St. Lawrence. The same was true in Spanish Florida in the southeast. Spain claimed all of southeastern North America based on their their stronghold in St. Augustine, but Britain divided that uh, expansive space into two much more limited colonies, the peninsular colony of East Florida and the Gulf Coast colony of West Florida. In both cases, uh, the idea was to create a new space in which colonists could migrate, but to have that space be limited so that Those new colonists would be uh, under the uh, watchful eye of imperial authorities, um, and that the Indians would be left in peace. So, in the Northeast, um, one of the primary goals for the new surveyors was to create pockets of durable settlement that would allow Britain to hold on to this territory against any future French wars or invasions. And so, one of the things I study a lot in the book is uh, the island of Saint John, which is now known as Prince Edward Island. It's a large island in the Gulf of Saint Lawrence, and this had. Inhabited by Acadians, uh, uh, French settlers who the British army had um, uh, dispossessed during the Seven Years' War. Um, and the goal of the Board of Trade was to survey this island, to divide it up into these massive townships, and to auction these uh, tracts of land off to investors in London who would promise to bring farmers and fishermen to. To uh, what now is Prince Edward Island. Um, and so uh, the mapping of this island is really um, a, a microcosm of the goal of the British to do tactical, strategic, and well-supported colonization initiatives so that Britain could use its great power, which was settling people on the land and encouraging them to make money and to populate this landscape so that Britain could hold on to it in the face of hope. Uh, they, they feared a, fr- a fr- A French return to the region. In um, uh, the interior of North America, um, uh, the goal was to bring some kind of rational order to American settlements. Um, Each colony was kind of like an empire in miniature. The leaders of these colonies, uh, people like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson in Virginia, uh, people who became uh, the founding fathers of the United States, these people knew that um, they were at the helm of a rapidly expanding uh, colonial society, and they benefited greatly from that, especially by speculating in land that would then be homes to these new settlers who were coming from Britain and elsewhere in Europe in record numbers during the middle uh, decades of the 18th century. Uh, So each of these colonial elites that ruled these colonies really believed they had a mandate to expand west, and in, in some ways the Seven Years' War Uh, was the idea that they would fight for Britain so it could expand west, so it could drive colonization into the interior. So they faced... 1763 as a kind of about face in which uh, this promise that Virginia could expand all the way to the Mississippi was uh, something that Britain withdrew in order to create Indian peace. And so this chapter really deals with the measuring of this boundary line. In the Southeast, um, the Florida colonies were designed to be new plantation colonies, uh, but Great Britain knew almost nothing about uh, Florida. And so its surveys were really just designed to to reveal where the rivers were and uh, what kind of land existed alongside them. But there was an attempt as well in East Florida to create a new kind of plantation society, one that would hopefully be less dependent on African slavery, which could be, as profitable as it was, a very volatile way to settle new land, always Incubating the 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 prospect of an internal rebellion from subjugated slaves, Um, and in the West Indies, these new colonies that had long been a bone of contention between France and Britain—places like Tobago, uh, Grenada, Saint Vincent, and Dominica—these were places that were designed to really pay the bills for this new empire. Um, It was very clear that these new lands would be immediately. Uh, cultivated as sugar plantations, and so the goal for the surveyors who worked for the Treasury Department uh, was to auction them off in London to the highest bidder, and to stimulate the slave trade, one of the great engines of economic growth in uh, the British Atlantic.
0: Wow, that was a that was a there was the British Empire in America, very very concisely. Uh, Put. that's brilliant, thank you. Sure. so in terms of these these maps uh, anyone who's been lucky enough to work uh in the british Library map room um, when you order one uh it's brought out in a very large roll and and they they sometimes push a couple of tables together and roll it all out uh and and you stand there looking at it for those of us who are fortunate enough to be able to go there um, they were. What happened to them after they were made? Where did they go? Who saw them? Where were they, were they displayed? Uh, what were they? How do they function as objects?
1: Yeah, so um, uh, the theorist Bruno Latour has this idea that um, these rising imperial states uh, were really um, uh, interesting because they. They uh, favored creating a center for information exchange in the heart of their empires, what he calls a, a center for calculation. And so these maps were really designed to be the um, the bearers of geographic information in what uh, the commissioners of the Board of Trade imagined was going to be a new center of calculation in London. So the big plan that the Board of Trade orchestrated across all these agencies and regions was for all these maps uh, to be produced by exacting standards so that um, they, could, they could populate an imperial archive that would be a kind of all-purpose resource for any imperial eventuality. So let's say a war breaks out in on the coast of Nova Scotia. Uh, they can go to their Nova Scotia section and find these high-resolution maps of the coastline to direct uh, ships and troops in the field, for instance. Um, So this was the idea behind um, this mapping enterprise, that eventually um, all of these maps would inhabit uh, this Imperial Archive and be this really remarkable and robust resource. This is but this also reveals the incapacities of these early modern states to manage this information. They, they made the maps, and there are hundreds, maybe thousands of them that still exist, um, but they never were able to bring them together into a viable center of calculation, kind of like the processing unit in a computer. Um, a lot of the maps never made it back to London. Um, in fact, there's one incident in the book where I talk about the uh, the final mapmaker who was in charge of the surveys in the West Indies, the so-called ceded islands. He went to the governor and said, well, what do, I, what do you want me to do with uh, the maps I've collected? Because my budget's done. I don't have any more funding. And the governor didn't know what to do. So this surveyor kept these maps in his home and, um, I believe in St. Vincent, um, uh, until they could be deposited in London years later, he allowed the planters who lived in these colonies to come and consult with these maps. This is an indication that Britain wasn't quite ready for this bold vision of geographic information uh, that uh, was behind these maps. And of course, once the American Revolution took place, uh, these maps ceased to be really useful as Uh, documents uh, uh, that would support government, and they became artifacts. So some of them ended up in private papers. Uh, Many of them ended up at the UK National Archives, at Kew, in the hydrographic office, in the Admiralty Library. Um, So part of my work as a scholar was to visit all these libraries. And, uh, you know, I couldn't see all of the maps that existed, but I tried to look as, at as many as I could. And those 257 maps and map collections that you mentioned at the beginning of our interview, uh, those that's my attempt to create a representative sample of this massive uh, mapping enterprise by collecting all these artifacts that were left behind after this great um, ambitious surveying
0: moment. Right. And so where the Board of Trade uh, failed to, to sort of consolidate them into one space, you've, you've sort of uh, gone digital uh, and, and ad- attempted to, to do that and, and, and have built a, a parallel uh, website for the book. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about that. Why did you decide uh, to take the, uh, the maps uh, online, I presumably because Harvard University Press wasn't going to uh, reproduce 257 of them?
1: Well, yeah, that, I did actually have a con- uh, conversation uh, with my editor uh, at Harvard. And and she was very enthusiastic about the project. But she warned me that you know the kind of book that they could produce um, was probably going to have maybe two dozen maps in it at most. Uh, and those would be small black and white images. Um, and of course, if, if you take a look at some of the maps I posted online, these are dense, hmm. uh, beautiful, yeah. colored images. Um, And so I immediately, and that really wasn't Harvard University Press's fault. It's the nature of book publishing. I could have uh, reached out to another press that publishes these big coffee table-sized books uh, that would have allowed me to publish many more color images, but those are extremely expensive to produce and to purchase, and it would have limited the readership, I think, for the book uh, to really a handful of collectors and libraries. So I wanted it to have a, a slightly broader reach. So as I began thinking about what kind of book this would be, I realized it wasn't going to be the kind of book that focused on um, a dozen masterpieces through which I was going to be able to tell the story of British America. Part of the key meaning of the book was to let readers actually see how voluminous this cartographic archive that I had reassembled was. I think that's the only way to get the main message of the book is just to see the volume of maps and the amount of space they cover and the amount of energy and time and seriousness it took to produce them. Um, Really, as I said, I I was never trained as a historian of cartography. My training was really as a social science historian, someone who looked at records relating to land and trade and tried to provide some kind of statistical picture of that data in order to make my conclusions. So I guess I approached the history of cartography really as a social science historian. I wanted a broad representative sample of of what I was looking at, and then I wanted to be able to systematically display it and draw conclusions from it. So I began uh, experimenting with digital humanities. I applied for grant support through the National Endowment for the Humanities that provided this project with a startup grant uh, for experimentation early in the the process. And then here at the University of Virginia, with my collaborator, Bill Furster, who's a visualization and computing expert, we teamed up and got an implementation grant that gave us uh, $300,000 over three years to develop Map Scholar, the online a browser-based web platform that map that uh, displays these maps. And uh, so this has been a long journey, but it allowed me to do what I otherwise couldn't have done through the traditional limits of book publishing, was to, to actually show readers what I was seeing in the maps, to make those maps not just inert images on the page, but dynamic, uh, moving images that could really get to the heart of what I was finding uh, in this cartography.
0: And that, uh, I mean... That, that development of the spatial and digital element to history is something that's really, really accelerating. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about where you see the potential for those sorts of applications for historians.
1: Yeah, so um, I'm continuing my work. In digital humanities, trying to think of what the next resource will be like. Those who um, read my book uh, really have to do so, I think, with a computer close at hand, so you can look at the text and then and and look at the map online. I know that's not an ideal solution, and I, I imagine. Um, and when I talk to my graduate students here at the University of Virginia, um, uh, I think we're going to have to reimagine what the uh, what the historical book looks like ten years from now. I can't imagine that. Um, uh, there won't be some deeper integration between uh, digital imagery and text as a normal way of reading history, especially history like the kind I write that deals with space and, and cartography. So um, I don't have an answer to that question, frankly. Um, I don't know what will be possible, but I do know that the digital revolution is here to stay, and for tools that are so valuable that can take these uh, historical artifacts and actually bring them to life, um, they're 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 too tantalizing to kind of leave on the shelf because we've produced books in a particular way. So hopefully I'll be um, someone who works on what that kind of solution uh, will look like in the future.
0: And in terms of the, if we, if we go back to the, to the text and if we look at spatial history, how does, I mean, if we look at American history has been, has you know this this is a book that sits in between British imperial history and early American history and and there remains sort of there remains a sort of a disciplinary boundary between those two but I mean if if we approach uh, this period of, of what's now called vast early America from a, a spatial perspective how do how do how do some of the fragment what used to be very fragmented in local histories how do how are they, how do they begin to be knit uh, back together into something that looks uh, more cohesive
1: so I think um, that's a good question. I think uh, um, the way I was taught uh, early American history was really from a regional perspective. So uh, everyone uh, I went to graduate school uh, with in the same generation as me in the 1980s and 90s, um, we learned that uh, the story of early America was the story of New England, of the middle colonies, of the so-called Lower South and the Caribbean, and that the key to understanding early America was to kind of trace these separate regions, how they evolved and emerged. The rise of Atlantic history was really important in furthering that vision and to put these regional spaces in a broader transatlantic context. So suddenly studying Virginia wasn't just studying a a provincial place in America, it was studying connections uh, through the tobacco trade to Britain and Northern Europe, through the slave trade to West Africa. And currently, I think the idea of vast early America um, is the idea that... um, Really, British America is too narrow a framework to understand the dynamics of what's going on in this hemisphere during the age of empire, and we should be more cognizant about all the uh, relationships and communication happening between British America, French America, Spanish America, and uh, I think currently now, not just with the Atlantic side, but also with the interior of the continent as well. So Native American history is really having a resurgence. So um, I'm not sure if this is going to produce a more integrated story i hope it is i think most of the best practitioners of this new kind of history believe it is um, but it's also very vast and so this is where spatial history and geographic history i think has a special role um, as much as we want to go vast as much as we want to see the broadest interconnections across the world and the hemisphere and the oceans uh, we also have to be historians who are attentive to human experience at the scale that human beings live in um and that and that i think is a in some ways what i was trying to capture with this book to to oscillate between the scale of colonization, the scale of the individual tract of land, the individual settlement, but also the big vision that stretches across the whole continent and beyond. So I think um, spatial history is going to become really important in this new quest to have a more integrative story of uh, the Atlantic world and beyond because um, we have to go between these two scales of analysis. Um, so I'm, I'm on board for what vast early America means, but I think I have my own definition of what it means.
0: Absolutely. You you mentioned the resurgence of of Native American history, and and it's a conspicuous uh, resurgence uh, in the past uh, decade. I wonder if you could say something about whether um, Native American understandings of land and space, were Native Americans, did they feed into the process of making these maps in any significant way?
1: Yeah, so I know um, this is a, a commonplace idea in early American history, but but uh, Europeans have a very particular view of land, especially the ownership of land. Um, philosophers like John Locke um, made it clear that only people who really build cities and cultivate fields and enforce order through government on territories had a claim as uh, a sovereignty claim to that territory. And Native Americans uh, had a different view of land that uh, was um, – Uh, based on uh, their uh, needs uh, in terms of economic development, uh, but was, uh, from their perspective, no less certain um, and so a lot of the clash between Native Americans and Europeans in America is the clash between two different views of land. And one of the ways I've tried to bring that to the front is by looking at a particular map that I'm very interested in studying more in the future. This is the uh, so-called Catawba deerskin map. It was a map uh, produced by Catawba Indians, literally painted on a, a deerskin and presented to South Carolina's governor in the 1720s. And one of the reasons it's, it's such an interesting map to study is because... Um, all the things we've been talking about, the high-resolution pictures of space that emerged uh, from military surveyors and, and populated the, these archives, uh, that's not the way Native Americans tended to see space. The Catawba Deerskin map is a series of circles, each one representing a town or a community uh, connected by lines, each one of those representing a path, a path that was both literal, a roadway, but also metaphorical, a path that represented connections between people as- across space. So the Catawba Deerskin map is, I think, a good way to get at how different Native Americans viewed the landscape. But the one thing I'll say is that um, those differences between Native and European views of the land were not completely irreconcilable. And the, the boundary discussions and negotiations I talk about in Chapter 4 of the New Map of Empire really get to the heart of this, that Native Americans believed that 1763, although it had a lot of – they had a lot of fears about what it it meant to be part of a British empire that really had no rival for the moment, um, it also was an opportunity for them to define what Indian nations might look like under this new regime. So there were at least um, powerful leaders within each of the major uh, Native American nations that were closest to British America that were very willing to negotiate and had some hopes that these negotiations would produce – some kind of permanent or semi-permanent resolution to the conflicts over land and trade that Europeans and Native Americans had been having for generations. Uh, So Native Americans were willing to come to the negotiating table and create these jointly authored maps that um, would define where the boundary would be. And they came to the negotiating table willing to take on the trappings of what Europeans might recognize as nations. Now, we all know the endgame of this story wasn't a good one for Native Americans, but in the moment that they were negotiating there was real promise in this idea that by making new maps they could forge some kind of uh, more permanent relationship with british american empire
0: that's right i mean the 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 famous map uh the fry jefferson map or the mitchell map these are maps that are actually used uh in the course of negotiations diplomatic negotiations with indian nations and and used as points of reference but uh, what's the, in terms of the, the pressure within uh, Indian country and along that 1763 proclamation line, I mean, to what extent are the settlers or colonists, we don't know quite what to call them uh, these days, uh, to what extent uh, are their objectives uh, in, in tension with what the border trade is trying to do?
1: They're absolutely intention. Uh, so uh, colonists, after the Seven Years' War, celebrated with British people everywhere about the British victories and the great territorial acquisitions. Um, but they believed that they had been fighting this war alongside British troops in order to secure their right to expand. And they were dumbfounded uh, when they discovered, uh, when the king issued his proclamation in 1763, that part of the Britain's intention was to limit Uh, each colonial society so that it would no longer be a a kind of miniature empire, but in fact would be a permanently bounded space that would permanently be set at the size of a a province and would never grow to become a great nation in its own right. American colonists had real ambitions for their growth as societies. They saw real grandeur in being a part of the vanguard uh, that would expand colonization to the West. And of course, many of the leaders also saw an enormous opportunity to become magnificently wealthy through land speculation. So all of these things... uh, Created a, an initial and and permanent rift between uh, North American colonists and the British government. Suddenly, American colonists were seeing instances in which British officials were taking the sides of Native Americans in disputes against them, and they felt that they uh, that their contributions to empire were being maligned, that their interests weren't being looked after, and that. Um, And this was intolerable to them. Um, And so we see, even though no one is really thinking about revolution at this moment in 1763, far from it, um, American colonists are are becoming uneasy at uh, seeing how British officials are protecting Native American land rights in their rhetoric and in their policies.
0: Because for years they have seen uh, their Native American neighbors as as adversaries and foes and competitors. Um, Why... Uh, what's, what's striking to me um, when I teach uh, American history um, in Britain uh, is how short uh, arguably Britain's imperial uh, moment in, in, in America is. If, if we take the period from uh, the first Treaty of Paris uh, that ends the Seven Years' War to the second Treaty of Paris that ends the Revolutionary War, we're not dealing with a tremendously long period of time what What do the maps tell us, uh, if anything, about uh, the the decline of of the British ability to control all of this this space?
1: Yeah, so it is uh, it is a very short amount of time, and so my book focuses on this sort of 20-year or so period. But each of the chapters also kind of uh, goes back into the early 18th century, late 17th century to sh- show the origins of these controversies. And of course, it's the Earl of Shelburne who's there at the beginning and the end, right? He's the uh, president mm-hmm. of the Board of Trade when the proclamation comes out, and he is the prime minister when um, the uh, empire is permanently uh, severed. Uh, uh, in 1783. So, um, the maps show us, uh, I think different visions of American empire. One, obviously the one that the board of trade wants to see, uh, instituted are the most prominent in the maps. The maps really reflect their vision and they're funding the surveys, but there are other ways of seeing how, um, how uh, Americans in the colonies view space in a different way, and one of the the, the things I looked at uh, when I was uh, trying to get at this American perspective was the very first map collection that the Revolutionary government created. This was created in the War Department by John Adams, who of course later became uh, the second president of the United States, but at the time he was the uh, the member of uh, the Continental Congress who was in charge of the War Department, and you know, like anyone in charge of a War Department, you need some maps so that you can coordinate uh, some of the uh, military events of the war, but uh, Adams uh, and and I was able to locate these maps because Adams wrote a long letter to Abigail Adams, his wife, where he talked about not only the the first maps that he had brought together to form this first national map collection of the United States, but also the fact that he thought that school children should be, pu- be poring over them and learning lessons, uh, learning the names of every American place, learning about the greatness of Americans' future uh, that these maps represented. What were these maps? These were the same British maps that had been uh, circulating around for years that had very different meanings to a British imperialist than to a revolutionary founding father. So Americans looked at these same maps, even the Mitchell map, and saw a bold case for Americans expansion into the West, uh, a renunciation of the Board of Trade's policies. And this vision was very hard to dislodge uh, and and could be seen on maps that Britain was using to try to enforce uh, a a different vision. So I think in some ways what my book contributes to the story of the American Revolution is to show that, obviously, you know, I'm not saying that... um, ideas about tyranny or uh, rights or representation or taxation weren't important. They were the bread and and butter of what revolutionaries argued when they made a case for revolution. But there was also a geographic reason why they wanted independence, and that was to pursue this geographic vision of expansion that Britain was starting to uh, regulate, curtail, and obstruct.
0: Right. And the early American maps, I mean, the, the, one, of, one of my favorites is Buell's map of, of, of 1784. They show us the beginning of uh, the transition uh, from colonies to states. And you mentioned early. you've mentioned a couple of times, and I, I want to draw it out because I think it's an important point, that each colony was a little empire unto itself. Now, what do you mean by that?
1: So each you – know, if we look at the way colonial British America was governed, uh, the king uh, – except in proprietary colonies, the king appointed a governor. That governor had uh, the role of an executive within these societies. But for the most part, these societies were really run by the uh, provincial assemblies. And those assemblies were run by uh, – were composed of the leading elites of the colonies, the wealthy old families. Uh, that were recognized as a leadership class. And if you look at the work that these colonial governments did, um, a lot of it was pretty mundane work, building bridges, commissioning roads, obviously in times of war, mobilizing troops to fight um, either on the Indian frontier or against an imperial adversary. Um, But if you look at the debates that these people had on an everyday basis, part of the work of these governments was adding new counties, adding new parishes, uh, promoting settlement in these new frontiers. When people Uh, worked for their local governments, that was really the great project that everyone was engaged in, in not only making uh, these colonies work effectively for the people who live there, but in expanding them. And every colony... uh, uh, in uh, British America had a kind of vision of the future in which their wealth, often their territory, would grow and become and 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 lead to greater wealth and stature and power and Americans were very reluctant to give up this vision that they were part of a society that was constantly improving they were very reluctant to be kind of curtailed and uh, left as just a minor province that would always be kind of overpowered uh, by uh, British officials. And so I think the great kind of emotional subtext for the American Revolution is this sense of being discounted and of being locked into a permanent state of childhood when Americans saw their societies as growing into a maturity um, that um, eventually would lead to independence.
0: Right. Do you have, having poured through drawer after drawer of maps at the National Archives and at other places, are there ones that that stick out to you as, as, as ones that are particularly beautiful or good? Or do you have any, you must have favorites. I know I do.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I'm very taken by one of the, the big atlases that came out um, in the 1770s and 1780s. That's de Bear's Atlantic Neptune Atlas. And I talk about it in the final chapter of the book, which really takes a look at all the surveying and shows how it left a mark in the great printed atlases that the that the London mapmakers made uh, in this period during and after the Revolutionary War. And the Atlantic Neptune, I mean, um, and, and copies of it are available online. Certainly, people can go to mapscholar.org slash empire and see see a few sheets from this atlas, as well as uh, the other uh, maps uh, uh, featured in the book. The Atlantic Neptune is like a dreamscape. It it shows these these, uh, vast coastlines, especially along the coast of Nova Scotia and the Gulf of St. Lawrence. There are beautiful uh, images of ships sailing uh, that are kind of inset. There are these, um, it almost looks like um, hand-titled cards, which give captions. And uh, profiles of the coastline. It's it's a vision of a kind of peaceful, prosperous, almost silent empire. And I think it captures something vital about the way British officials saw America as this, this vast space that could be represented and controlled. It would be a source of prosperity for the future. These maps are also ironic because they picture an empire that no longer exists by the time the maps came out. Um, the other map I think I, I probably spend the most time with, uh, and in fact, when I the title of the book is The New Map of Empire, which refers to an idea, a vision for empire, but I think it also refers to this particular map. This is Emanuel Bowen's new and exact uh, map of North America. This A copy of this map was used by the Board of Trade to illustrate their report to the king uh, in June of 1763. This is the report that laid out this vision that uh, suggested what became the proclamation of 1763. And what I love about this map is um, they took this map, they bought it from Emmanuel Bowen's map shop on Fleet Street, and they um, they hand-annotated it. They drew the first red line across the map that would become uh, what we call now the proclamation line. They colored in the new colonies to show the new boundaries of Quebec and, and East Florida. And um, the fact that the the empire couldn't even be proposed without mapping it in this way, I think, uh, gives credence to the idea that I want to put forward that that mapping was really vital to British America in this moment.
0: Right. So, have you had enough of mapping, or uh, we're we're just at the pretty much the end? Um, I just want to move on to what you're working on now. Is have you? Uh, is there? Is mapping going to continue to be – is that what you're working on now? I think so.
1: So um, no. there, I'm working on two new projects, and both in some ways emerge from from this book. Um, the, the the research project that I hope will be a new book in a, in a couple of years is a study of William Blathwaite, the uh, Board of Trade um, Secretary who, com- who compiled what's called the Blathwaite Atlas, which is at the John Carter Brown Library in Providence, Rhode Island. So uh, Blathwaite was uh, one of the first British imperial officials who really tried to compile um, maps in order to govern Britain's rising empire. And I had the privilege last week of going to the Huntington Library in California and working through a lot of uh, his papers that have been collected. Um, There's more uh, papers in in London and in Williamsburg, Virginia, that I'm going to consult as well. My hopes for this project is to locate the moment in which English America stopped being a, a kind of assortment of individual enterprises and colonies and started being conceived of as an empire and what that meant. Of course, I'm going to be looking at maps and geographic information, but I want to I want to try to track down the moment in which the British Empire began um, to understand it uh, through the character of uh, William Blathwaite, a really interesting uh, person who rose through the ranks to become one of the most prominent uh, officials of 17th century uh, England. The other project I'm, I'm working on uh, relates to this catawba skin map that um, that we talked about a moment ago. So uh, this, uh, I- I- I'm not sure what even to call it. It's not going to be an article. It's not going to be a book. It's going to be a born digital research enterprise in which I try to locate the spaces of southeastern North America using this Indian map as a guide and really as the main way to understand space. Um, So uh, my goal for this is to not only do the traditional things that historians do, looking at documents and archives, reading the works of other historians and reacting to them and synthesizing that knowledge, but to do this in a digital format in which seeing the results of this research uh, visually are as important as explaining them uh, with text. So it's a bit of an experiment in which I'm trying to, to figure out what digital scholarship might look like and to privilege this amazing artifact the catawba deer skin map
0: well i can't wait to see to see the results um i've been talking to max edelson from the university of virginia the book is the new map of empire uh you can visit map scholar by following the links on the page to this podcast max i want to thank you for your time
1: thank you very much it's been a pleasure